Hello everyone, Stucker you here. And I'm Gabby. And welcome back to the History of Everything podcast. Yes, I'm uh, I'm back here with Gabby again. If you're listening to this right now on Spotify, Apple, anything like that, please do make sure to go over to the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel, which is going to be linked down in the description. All right, so Gabby, today's topic, what I wanted to talk about, I saw a comment on a video that was asking to please talk about the Dutch East India Company which is something that I want to talk about, because when people think of the East India Company, they're usually thinking of like the British one, right? Like the English East India Company, that one, the um, because you had the you have the East Indies and you have the West Indies. And of course, your family comes from the West Indies. Yeah, I didn't know there are multiple East India companies. Well, no, because there was the West India Company and the East India Company. There's technically two. Okay. Okay. So the British one was which one? They had both. There they were had multi- both companies. Yes, but there were multiple East India companies. So there was the Dutch East India Company, the British East India Company. Hell, there was even an Austrian East India Company. Different countries created the companies to compete on the international stage, specifically for products like the spices, the porcelain, the sugars, like the, like the everything. They were trying to compete with all of it, so they had to create companies to do so. Because companies are a very recent invention. That's not... That's not something that has always existed, which is why that, that's actually what I wanted to talk about, what I wanted to um, tell the story of, because the Veringit, but I don't, I'm not even sure how I would call this. It's the VOC. I'm not even going to try to pronounce it in Dutch. It's like the Veringit Ost Indisch Company, which is like, <laughs> the, the, it's the VOC. It's the VOC. The VOC. The collectively, VOC. Right? Yeah, the I think VOC. you should stick to the VOC. I'm going to call it the VOC from the rest of this. So you have the VOC, right? That's the United East India Company. And that was the first multinational corporation. But it wasn't just the first multinational corporation. This was the largest one to ever exist. Do you know how big this thing was? Like for anyone, anyone who's probably watching or listening, commenting right now. I don't know if you're if you are seeing this. I don't think you can grasp just how big this thing was. Where do you think it was in comparison to some of the companies we have today, like Google or Apple or any of those? Probably as big as Amazon. Imagine if Amazon, Apple, and Google were all combined into one. And then it was bigger than all of that. Okay, how, how are we measuring the size of the company? Relative with the amount of money, property, military power, and yes, I'm not exaggerating that, military power that it had, this company was the equivalent of many countries. It had more economic and military power than most countries on earth. How? Yeah, I know. It, it sounds, I, I'm going to explain that. I'm going to tell the story because that's how insane this is because it's, it, it really is wild. Okay. So this company, right? It existed for almost 200 years. And that is from its founding in 1602 when you had the States General of the Netherlands, which granted it a 21 year monopoly over Dutch operations in Asia all the way until 1796, because then, of course, you start getting involved in the Napoleonic conflicts and things just get bad. But during those two centuries that it was active, the VOC sent almost a million people to Asia, more than all of the rest of Europe or not all of, but most of the rest of Europe combined. It was an insane amount. They were dominant in Asia. So this this company, right, this thing commanded almost 5000 ships, right? And we're, we're not talking like little dinghies or anything like that. I want you to imagine if a company controlled something on the lines of 5,000 yachts, right? 
we're, we're talking about the multi-million, like many, many million dollar vessels, the things that would be engaging in trade, in warfare, in literally everything, wreaking huge profits from the spice trade. The VOC, as I said, was larger than most countries. Now, because of that, in part because of the VOC, Amsterdam, like Amsterdam in the Netherlands, that was essentially the center of what you could call early imperial, like the capitalism, like the rise of capitalism as a kind of economic concept. It was essentially the 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 cornerstone. It was the it was the focal point of it for literally centuries. And the VOC from this transformed markets as what we know it, because it, this is this is where it all kind of arises, right? The foundation of the VOC comes from when the Dutch were trying to challenge the Portuguese because the Dutch were not the first players in Asia. The first people that were over there, that was going to be the Portuguese. And when the Dutch initially started to come over, their ventures were pretty successful. I mean, some of their ships, some of these trips that they took had a 400% profit margin, which is ridiculous. Like, if you think about a profit margin on something, this that's like someone who's going and saying, oh, yeah, um, this this shirt that. I made I made it for like five dollars, but I sold it for twenty five. Like that's a huge profit margin. And then multiply that by millions upon millions of those at the same time. It's a ridiculous amount of money that they were bringing in. And so naturally, right, the investors, they want more. They want to do more of this. But before the establishment of the VOC in 1602, a lot of those individual ships, the way that they would engage in trade, that was being done by specific merchants who would pool their resources, create a limited partnership, and then once their ships actually came back, the partnership was over. It was done. You didn't have companies. It would just be people who would go, hey, we're going to band together and pool our money so that we can invest in a couple ships, and then once the ships come back, then we're done. So it was like stocks. You invested in stocks. It was the stock market of the it was proto stocks. It was proto stocks. The VOC was the development of stocks. They are the rise. That is the rise of the stock market, effectively. So what would happen, right, is that these merchants would invest in several ships at a time. You wouldn't take your million dollars and put that into one ship, even though that one ship would cost you know a million dollars. You would put three hundred and thirty-three thousand dollars, and you would put that into three different ships, so that in case one or two of the ships failed to return because shipwreck drownings whatever happens then at least one of your ship makes makes it back and the profit margins are so huge that you still make money so that was the idea it was the idea of safety because the english had founded the east india company in 1600 and the dutch in 1602 created the vok and so the charter of that new company would empower them to build armies to make treaties to make forts to make all literally it said hey this company um Go off in that direction and do whatever. Do your thing. That's pretty much it. It was literally giving free reign to these guys to just go over and basically be a pseudo country in the name of the Dutch state. That, 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 that's how it was. It was quite literally because they could do all these contracts because they had a military because they had all these. Mil uh, it, it was literally the beginning of the military industrial complex. Like that, the VOC was the original military industrial complex. Okay, how was it 
military. Like, I get industrial. I understand the industrial part, but just because they had, I guess, navies to protect their ships? Navy, guns, protect from pirates, and lots of soldiers because then you would need them to establish bases and take over territories. So think think like this. You... The reason why this happens, and I'll explain it, it all comes back because of one thing, and that is spice. So the whole reason why they go over, the reason why the Portuguese, the Spanish, the English, the Dutch, the reason why they're all there is because of the spice trade. Because what happens is you have clove, you have nutmeg, you have mace, and you have all these different things that are native to only a handful of islands, only a few very small, tiny islands that were in the middle of Indonesia, right? And I'll give you this as an example. Cloves, which were on five Maluku islands, which are the Malaccas, that is around 1,250 kilometers or 778 miles west of New Guinea. And you had nutmeg on the 10 Banda islands that were approximately 2,000 kilometers east of Java. Despite their popularity, Europeans had no idea where these things came from. They just knew it was out east. It was a very well-kept secret. So these things were so incredibly valuable that you wanted to send people over there with guns, not only to try and protect the the trader. Because if you're carrying valuable products, pirates and stuff are going to attack you, right? So they would go over there and they would have all these weapons and guns and different things to protect themselves, but also to establish bases because if they could secure the supply points where the stuff came from, then they were going to be in control of all that sweet, sweet cash. It was just legal for them to pull up with a like, boat full of guns and men. Okay, and define then legal. Establish a base. Define legal in the 1600s okay. for how people are going to act, Gabby. So legal, they weren't breaking any laws, like internationally. or well, How did the politics, the relations between the countries that they would do this at work? Uh, the international like, they were game just fine like a very it? simple way. It's very simple. Okay. Screw you. Okay. Yes. I'm not exaggerating with that. Okay. So let's just say right now, okay, I'm part of this country and I pull uh-huh. up in my big boat with my guns to, I don't know, Honduras. And I just like lay out a base there. Mm-hmm. If this were the 1600s, they'd just be like, cool. They'd be like, all right, hi, hi, military, hi, hi, base. I'd just be fine with that. I mean, I'm assuming in the 1600s, unless you're Spanish, the Spanish are then going to come and kick you out. But if we're talking about at this okay, point, yeah, but it, like the, here, here's one. I'll explain more of why this was able to work. But you have to remember that with significantly less population, there's a lot more rural areas and places where there's a lot of land that just simply isn't being used in so many places. So it was very efficient for someone to come in go in, establish a base, and you might have a local ruler. And this is one of the reasons why they were given the ability to engage in contracts and treaties with local rulers. Because what the Dutch, the Portuguese, the Spanish would do is they would show up on an island. They would go meet with like the local ruler of it and would be like, hey, so um, you don't like those guys on that island over there, right? What if I like, um, what if I gave you some guns and some men and we went over there together and we killed a couple of them. Could I have this piece of land over here? Just like just this little segment, you know, just this little part that's on the mouth of a river that has this really nice bay that I can dock my ship at. And the ruler's like, hell yeah, of course you can. I hate those guys. Let's do it. I'm not even exaggerating. The, what would happen is you'd have all these these chiefs, 
kings and all these sultans, these different groups, that they would team up when an outsider shows up with guns. You make an alliance with them to take down your rival, strengthen your own power base, and then it gives some power to the foreigners who just came. It was a very, very, very common thing. And the Dutch, the Portuguese, a lot, they did all of this. That's interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that's pretty much what they would do. So, right. So, for over, if we're talking again, going back to the spice, for over a thousand years prior to this, right, you have clove, nutmeg, and mace. And in world trade, the only one who really knew about a lot of these, it was really dependent on Indonesian sailors. These are the ones who would carry them from the Malay Peninsula, Java, Sumatra, all these different places around there in the Indonesian archipelago, where Indian and Arabian sailors would then access them and distribute them across to the rest of the Indian Ocean, you know, to like Arab traders and to these different groups. So the Arab traders would then carry the spices up the Red Sea. This would be to like Alexandria, the Persian Gulf, the Levantine ports, or to meet Venetian traders. The Venetian traders would then take them to Europe. And because the Arabs knew where all this stuff came from and the Europeans didn't and they couldn't get access to it because the Arabs were the ones that controlled the routes to and through the Holy Land and Asia. They're like, well, sorry, tough luck. Um, here's this thing for five times or ten times the price it's actually supposed to be. Like, like that, that's just it. I say actually supposed to be, but it was expensive then. But because the Arabs knew that the Europeans wanted the spice. They wanted all of these different things for food, for medicine, for all different kinds of stuff. They would jack up the price even more because they were the middlemen that could make a whole bunch of money. It's like, remember when I would talk to you about when I worked as a broker for uh, for the logistics company? And it was always felt so weird where a trucker or we, we would get a deal where we would tell a company like, oh, yeah, uh, I, I can do this deal for two thousand dollars. And then it's like you'd hire a truck to do it for eight hundred and pocket the difference. And that's how you made money. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I hated that doing that job so much, but that's literally what this is. This is talking about being a middleman specifically to just jack up the price to pass it on to the next person because they could. I mean, it's business. Oh, it is. It's business. Like they made a killing on it. There's a reason why you had so, so many wealthy, great developed trade ports going throughout Arabia. They were phenomenal traders and businessmen throughout the region. But it's like that is one of the key driving factors for why the Europeans wanted to go around and to go elsewhere to get the stuff because it was stupid. It was, expensive. it was too stupid expensive for it. Right. So really, that goes on for a while. And it's not until the early 1500s that the Europeans learn where the spice is coming from. And not long after you have Vasco da Gama who discovers the route to Africa and to India and to Southeast Asia. You then have the Portuguese viceroy of India called Albuquerque, who was told of the Spice Island by a number of sailors that were in the port of Malacca along the Malay Peninsula. And this had been, as I said before, for centuries, this was the meeting ground where they were all coming to. This is where they all were. So the Portuguese are starting to establish themselves in these ports. And I know I'm going off on this whole tangent, right? It's, it's really important to, the backstory like of this, this. to understand the Dutch. We're talking about the Portuguese like a century earlier, but I swear to you, this is going to get to the Dutch. I'm it's looking like the whole for point. it in notes and I'm like, what are you, what are you even talking about the, right now? So this is the whole reason why this is here, right? So, because this is the origin, it's the origin of spice. It's the origin of the story, right? So Albuquerque goes and he hires a bunch of guards, right? And then he sends some ships on an exploration mission under the command of a guy called Antonio de Abreu or Abro. 
and he and his lieutenant then go and arrive in the Bandas in 1512. This was the series of islands where there's spices. And they were able to fill their ships with so many spices, and this just made them rich. Well, it should have been, at least, because a bro made this a successful trip returning to Malacca, but the other guy, his lieutenant, uh, Serao, or Seraos, I'm not actually sure how I'd pronounce his name, right? I think it would be Serao. Yeah. He, um, eh. he did something a little stupid. He, uh, he, he kind of overstuffed his ship because this was really valuable stuff. It's like if you went into a situation, you're like, hey, uh, we will literally load your car with gold. And they just threw thousands of pounds of gold in the back of our Jeep. And it just caused the tires to just crush. And our Jeep, it's like, you've, okay, you've seen those overloaded trucks, right? That have so much cement and stuff in the back of them that they just kind of cave under their own weight in the back. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Uh, yeah, but you wouldn't do that because you'd know there's weight limits. I'm pretty sure this guy should have known. Because if this were his job and he was like an established person and he had an entire ship, you'd think he'd go, oh man, maybe there's a weight limit. I mean, the knowledge wasn't as precise. I'll give you that. But also Estimate. money. But also money. <laughs> you throw out one clove, that's like one pound of gold that you're not going to have in your hands. Because this stuff, this stuff was literally worth its weight in gold. It was the most valuable substance on Earth, essentially. At least to the Europeans. It was ridiculously, ridiculously valuable. So that guy ends up getting shipwrecked, right? And his crew is then brought to the Malaku island of Ternate by the local sultan called Sarula, who he hopes to use, Sir, like, Sarul as an ally against, or he, he hopes to ally himself with the Portuguese against the other like people in the area like his big rival was the other state called Tidor the Tidor were that was another sultanate like on one of the islands that they, they were constantly trying to kill each other so he enlisted his help as both an advisor and also with his crew as a band of mercenaries to just assist them so he remained on that island for the rest of his life until he died and that's just what happened. It's like he had nowhere else that he could go. He wasn't going to be let go. He just had to serve as a mercenary forever then. That's just how it went down. But that's the Portuguese, right? The second group that begins to arrive is the Spanish, specifically the remnants of Ferdinand Magellan. Remember how Magellan is the guy that, of course, went around the world? Yeah. I mean, yeah, he was the first guy to circumnavigate the world, but not him. His crew was. The reason why we give him the credit is because he was the one that was in charge, but he died before it was ever actually done. There, there's a whole story behind that, and I've actually covered it a couple times in like um in like different episodes of things. But yeah, he he gets killed by a uh, by a folk hero called Lapu Lapu, right? And it's it's a whole okay. story behind that. But his 
crew, or rather what's left of it, they end up arriving. And this forms a competition between the Portuguese and the Spanish for control of the Spice Islands because no one could really determine who was actually going to be in control of them. Now, obviously, there was people who were already there, like the sultanates that were in control. But I'm talking about like the dominant powers who were going to control the trade and everything because they actually had the guns. So the this competition opens up between the Spanish and the Portuguese where there normally wouldn't have been. Because are you familiar with something called the Treaty of Tordesillas? It sounds familiar because I've heard you say it in a video before, but yes. I'm not sure what it is. You might have also heard it from when you were in Trinidad and talking about it because the Treaty of Tordesillas is specifically what gave rise to the all the Spanish control of all the Caribbean islands in the places oh, except great. for Brazil. Because the Treaty of Tordesillas, for anyone who is not aware, that is the treaty that divided the entire Earth into zones of control between the Spanish and the Portuguese. It basically went... Only the Spanish and the Portuguese. Yes. That's it. Okay. That's it. And it was ratified by the Pope and everything. And it's like, that. that's what they did. Because what it was, when we say control of the world, we're talking about outside of Europe and whatnot, where the Portuguese got Africa and everything heading east. The Spanish got um, the Americas and everything heading west, except for Brazil. Portugal also got Brazil. But that's it. Okay, what about the rest of Europe? How do they come into play? Because, yes, we were a Spanish colony first, but then Trinidad got independence from British. So what? Well, because where there was colonization, right? Okay, because there's whole backstories for that. But where the rest of Europe comes into play is that the French don't really get themselves involved and the English as well. And even the Dutch, except for a few islands that are in the Caribbean, they're not involved necessarily as much in Spain. Uh, I say Spain in Mexico, which is New Spain. They're not involved in like South America at all. They are the one that this is the reason why they go to North America, because the Spanish were not really in North America. So the French and the Dutch and the English, they largely go into the northern parts where they're establishing trade because of fur. Remember how we did the whole fur episode on like the history of the, the fur trade? Yes. Like that. Firmageddon. Yes. Yes. Firmageddon. That that's specifically where that comes from. Right. So this treaty, right, the Treaty of Tordesillas divides the world, but there's a problem, right? So if one side gets everything in control heading west and the other side gets everything in control heading east, do you, do you see where there's a problem? An uneven split. Like one side gets a lot of the good stuff, right? Well, we say that because the Portuguese were largely in control of the really rich spice trades for the most part out of Asia, but... Also, where does, where does it stop? How far around would they go? Where does it stop? Around. Because what is the Earth? So did they, did they measure it? Did they sail the exact? Um, it, still, that won't work because they were sailing. So it would depend on wind speeds. Can they even measure that? Yeah. Like, how did they know where to stop? It you could just keep going. based out of who reached what first and laid control and had forts and all this stuff to claim it. But it depended on oh, direction. That's brilliant. So this meant that both countries, because the Earth is round, so they're eventually going to meet there at one point. They could both lay claim to the Spice Islands as long as Portugal traveled there from the east and Spain went around from the west. So it's like a race so just to meet to, to see who could basically get there and claim as much as they could. So there was a lot of divided control in that area. So, so th this is what's going on during that time. There's a whole competition to claim and earn as many favors with local lords and doing as much as they can, right? But Magellan, after he had died, his remaining two ships, of course, sailed beyond, like, go, they went on after his death, 
and they followed a rather haphazard route that was heading towards Tidor, and they got there on the 5th of November, 1521. The Victoria, one of the ships, that continued towards home on the 21st of December, while the other one, called the Trinidad, that lingered for repairs, right? Both ships were in really bad shape. Like, the Victoria barely survived passage. It almost did not make it. It had it was dealing with all these kinds of storms that were going around Africa. It was attacked by pirates. It had its crew was dying of scurvy and starvation and all kinds of shit. It was bad. So on the 6th of September, 1522, the remaining crew finally made it back to Spain. Out of the two, on my birthday. Yeah. 1522. On the so on this day, out of 270 members of the original crew. 18 survived. Wow. Yeah. Could you imagine being the 18, though? Do you think they had survivor's guilt in the 1500s? They did, but also they didn't understand scurvy. I mean, I remember I did a whole little, like, short video thing analyzing, like, the history of scurvy before. It's Yeah, but when did they realize scurvy? Like, how to avoid scurvy? When did they learn about it? They, they learned from things that worked on it, but they didn't generally know. Okay, so the, the whole thing, and I mean, this is going to be a little bit of a sidetrack here, but when we're talking about stuff for scurvy, right? We're talking about a disease that people did not know. They didn't know what vitamin deficiency was. They didn't know what vitamins were. Right? Oh, yeah, obviously. So, but how so, did they start figuring out how to treat it? The way they figured it out is that certain drinks or things when prepared, when given, would work. So, so as an example, nettle tea, like from pine needles. So when sailors were arriving in the New World, right, and some of them were sick with scurvy, Native Americans had for centuries been making a kind of herbal brew, like as a kind of tea, out of pine needles. And this was very, very, very rich in vitamin C. So they would give that to them. It was one of the things that would be traded for, and that would cure the scurvy. And it wasn't until, like, um, it wasn't until this Dutch naturalist or scientist was actually doing tests on different things to see what would fight scurvy that it was determined what specific items would be that would cause that, that would help fight it so so it ended up being a point where certain items rather than give specific teas or anything they would just be added to beer so they would add things that would add vitamin c to beer because that was part of the standard fare that you would receive while on a ship so sailors when drinking their beer would also be drinking their vitamin c supplement that was in the beer. That's brilliant. Well, too bad these guys are starving, so they had no vitamin C supplements. Oh, yeah, no, they didn't really have anything there. So, uh, that all being said, despite the fact that only 18 men made it back and the ship was in horrible shape, it still had a bunch of spices, right? So, despite all of the misfortune, despite everything that it did, it was still profitable. Losing, like, three ships not making it back. Only one ship makes it back. That one ship has 18 members, and it's still profitable. That doesn't seem possible so that you have that much loss and it's still a profit. But you have to remember when I said in the beginning that they were seeing profits as high as like 400%. In the end, they were just like, worth it. Worth it. <laughs> worth it. I'm not even kidding. It was literally like, oh, well, it is what it is. We made money. We got some spices. That's that, that, that was it, it's what made the world go round. Some of you wanted. may die, but that is a sacrifice. The company was willing to make. Wow. Corporations have been the exact same throughout history. Wow. Lord, Lord Farquaad LLC. <laughs> <laughs> Literally, that's what it is. Oh, no. Oh, my God. Right. Okay. Okay. 
so so that 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 sultanate of uh, of Ternate, right? And and Tidor and these others. So Ternate allows the Portuguese to build a fort in 1522 and they establish a kind of trading colony. But the relationship between them doesn't really it it it, it goes from pretty nice to pretty bad fairly quickly. Over the next half century, there would be a series of Portuguese governors that would be sent to this outpost to get more spices and more trade concessions, and they would get more and more brutal with the local population because they're trying to extract more and more and more and more. So the sultans of the Ternate, they continued to work with and serve the Portuguese effectively, but eventually they would rise up against them and begin to fight back, which would cause a whole series of conflicts that would allow a new power to step into the state because for over a century, the Portuguese effectively reigned supreme in the Indian ocean. And it wasn't until 1595 then that nine Amsterdam merchants would join together and they would organize the first Dutch expedition. The Dutch at this point, their story is quite literally, Hey, we see an opportunity for a market. I'm just going to, step on in here and that's literally their entire history is just like ooh, money-making opportunity i'm gonna go and then they do it they do it again and again and again and again see they they choose this guy right called cornelius or cornelis it's like it's like cornelis de hotman is his name and he is supposed to lead it and he has four ships the plan that they had was going to be to follow the traditional portuguese route that went around the cape of good hope and then head towards Bantam, which was the main pepper port of Java, and then search for the Spice Islands to try and find them. The whole thing was an absolute disaster. They never made it to the Spice Islands, and they instead only brought back a couple spices when they eventually made it home. That story is really wild, and it's another thing I put in here as a tangent because I just wanted to tell it. So here's the story of misfortune, Gabby, and why all of this didn't really generally work out so well for... um, for people like it could get um, it could get very troublesome for him. So the voyage had problems from the beginning. Uh, first thing that happened is that scurvy broke out only after a few weeks because they didn't have enough supplies. OK, well, that's what happens. Uh, next thing at Madagascar in the bay where they were anchored. So many people died, something along the lines of 70 at here that they had to be buried. And this whole place became known as the Dutch Cemetery. Just this bay in Madagascar that to this day, like referred to as Dutch Cemetery. After the death of one of the skippers, a whole series of fights broke out among the captains. And one was then imprisoned on board and locked up in his cabin. On June 1596, the ships finally arrive at Banton, which is the northwestern port of Java. And de Hutman was then introduced to the Sultan of Banton, who entered into an agreement with him thinking like, okay, this is going to be something they'll be able to help us against the Portuguese and other groups, right? But... Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel of urine! Cat 
and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. They're not looking to buy the pepper there. They're wanting to go search for the Spice Islands. And this is really suspicious for the Portuguese who don't want to let them get anywhere in on their territory, right? So they don't buy any black pepper because black pepper is expensive, but it's not the real spice they want. They want to go find the cloves and the nutmeg and all the other stuff. So they wait there and until they can leave. But during the process of waiting there before they can leave, they end up pissing off and accidentally i guess insulting the sultan who was no so they got kicked out for rude behavior and so they weren't able to buy any spices at all so then the ships have to sail east to a place called madura but then get attacked by pirates (laughs) so they finally get to madura and they're received rather peacefully everything seems to be okay but dehutman i guess thinks that these pirates are in league with the people there. So he orders that his men attack and um, do horrible things to the civilian population there because of all the piracy. This Dehutman, Dehutman, he doesn't sound like a very good leader. Oh, just wait until you hear about it. I'm not even going to talk about it, but it gets worse. Oh, the Dutch over the course of their control of Indonesia um, were, well, they were wasn't that the king? Wasn't that like the king's You're private? Thinking about the Belgians in the Congo. Oh, this is a okay. whole other thing. The Dutch, the Dutch over the over the couple centuries would do some pretty nasty things in Indonesia. They, they absolutely would. So the ships then sail for Bali and they meet the island's king, right? And there they manage to obtain a few pots of peppercorns, and two of the crew members stay on at the island. At Boeen, one of the ships, the Amsterdam, just they set it on fire and the crew then divide themselves over the next three ships because they've lost so many men, they can't maintain all the ships they have. So when the sailors just by this point are exhausted, they don't want to go anymore. They, they, they just decide, you know, we're not even going to go search for the islands anymore. We're done. They don't go to the Malaccas. They just return to Holland. And that very evening that they do this, another one of the skippers dies. And De Holtman is accused of having poisoned him. I believe that he poisoned him. Yep. Given his track record. So everything's fine, right? At this point, they're heading on home. It's all good. Don't worry. Except Portuguese ships then stop them from taking any water or supplies at the port of St. Helena. And thus, out of 249 men that were crewed, only 87 of them managed to return. And they were too weak to even moor the ship themselves. They're just like passed out on the ship, sick. Why did the Portuguese ships prevent them from taking on water and supplies? Competition? Yes. Again, That's... remember remember what I said? How do the countries okay. interact with each other? Screw you. I understand that, but that is next level messed up. Like, obviously the Portuguese ships know they need the food and water. They're like, let's just kill all of these men. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise they come back with even more men. Which, in the end, they actually did. Because, all that being said, the trip was still profitable. And that encouraged them to do more trips. 
Screw Yay, their lives. We want more slices. That's how everybody it died, but we made some money. Exactly. Exactly. Is this, this entire? Is this the entire podcast episode? Everybody dies, but hey, we made money. They were rich. Yes. They were so rich. Yes. Okay. Cool. That is precisely. I think it's a little. It's a little too soon. Um. It's been like it's a little too years. topical. It's, it's been, been a little too topical. Years. Okay, so. A second expedition, right, then sets out in 1598, but this one has six ships and is led by a guy called Jacob von Neck and Wiebrand von Warwick and Jacob von Hemskirk, each of which is commanding a ship. So von Neck was a rather shrewd manager, and he returned to the Netherlands in July of 1599 with four ships that were loaded in spices. Von Warwick's ship set off for Ternate, while von Hemskirk's sailed to the Banda Islands. Now, Warwick reached Ternate without any kind of incident, and he was received fairly well. He got a bunch of spices, he left for home, and he got to Amsterdam in 1600. Fine. Great. Hemskirk wasn't received as well, but over time he managed to lavish enough gifts and do things to earn the Sultan's favor, and he finally won their trust, and he got a whole, a whole shipload of nutmeg and was able to return home in late 1600. So this all, like the ship's return. This is a huge, huge success. That is a copious amount of spices that they've just gotten. And because of that really successful adventure, it then inspires dozens of additional expeditions to make the trip. And so to consolidate the resources and to make it easier, the government then forms the Dutch East India Company. This is where it comes in. I know that I've been going on this forever, but this is actually where it comes in. That's what she said. <laughs> so they formed. Wait, the, we haven't started. No, I, I know because I've, I've been going on forever because I've had to I've had to talk about the whole like backstory of all this happening. Right. So so this happens in 1602. And this at this point, power is given to them to govern the east and they're allowed to run their own shipyards, to build forts, to keep armies, to make treaties, to do all of this. The first Vok fleet set sail on the 18th of December, 1603, and within a few years, the company goes and establishes a network of hundreds of bases across Asia. By the time we get to 1605, there were a number of forts which were called factories. So it's like a trade outpost slash military base was called a factory. So you had factories on Java, Sumatra, Borneo, Spice Islands, Malay Peninsula, mainland India. They're everywhere. They're connecting all of these positions here through trade. And this whole operation is run by a guy called the governor general who operated essentially as the head of state of the VOC. And so with the Dutch now arriving in force, things are starting to look a little bad for the Portuguese because in 1604, you had this Englishman, right? This guy named Henry Middleton. He goes to the Indian Ocean with four ships and he arrives at the West Port uh, at the West Javan port of Bantam on the 21st of December. Two of the ships were loaded with pepper and sent back home, while Middleton and the remaining two sh ships, they went to travel to the Ambon Islands in the Malaccas. And upon the arrival, Middleton got permission to trade by convincing the local Portuguese commander that King James I of England and Philip III of Spain, which was a.k.a. Philip II of Portugal, because by this time they were in a personal union. It's a whole interesting dynamic political thing there. But basically, the two crowns are controlled by the same king now. So they're together. They had been fighting a lot, but he managed to convince these traders like, no, guys, listen, 
We, we just signed like a peace treaty. We're good. We're not fighting anymore. It's fine. Now, mind you, he didn't know this. He goes and bluffs his way out of it. Like, what are you talking about? War? We're not at war. We, 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 we signed a peace like months ago. No, it's fine. Turns out they actually were at peace, but he didn't know it because they signed a peace five months after he left. So he would have had no way to hear that they were actually at peace. He just bluffed his way through that entire thing. Just, just tricking, just tricking people, making them think that they were at peace, even though they actually were. I don't know. It's a weird, it's a weird kind of scenario. Honestly, that worked out really well for him. Like, could you imagine bluffing and coming out fully right? I know. I know. Just the likelihood of it. It's just, it's just odd. So he convinces them that everything is okay. And he loads his ships up with spice. But right before he can finish loading, they see something out on the horizon. A Vok Armada. The Dutch had sent a fleet to challenge the Portuguese for control of the islands. And the English just ended up being in the middle of it without even knowing what was going on. So they have to retreat while the Portuguese now have to deal with a full-scale invasion by the Dutch. The Middleton had no idea that what he was seeing, he was like right in the middle of this whole new Dutch-Portuguese war out there. So he then arrives in Tidor on the 27th of March, just as the Dutch and their allies were about to attack, and he's able to convince the Portuguese to allow him to trade and get spices and get cloves by staying out of the war. Like, he will not assist with the Dutch. He will not do any of this stuff to work against them. He just wants his spices, and then he's going to leave. That's it. And so a few days later, the Dutch then successfully take over the Spanish fort on Tidor, and they begin harassing the Portuguese on Ternate, forcing the Portuguese to withdraw from the Muluku Islands in 1663, when it became clear that the cost of maintaining the strongholds that they had there were just, it wasn't worth it. For years, the Dutch and the Portuguese are just fighting. And then after all these years and years and years and years of fighting, they just, eventually, they're just like, we're out. We, we can't deal with this anymore. They just did not have the manpower or the resources or the other things there to actually fight anything like the Dutch did. It's just, it's not like it was necessarily all smooth sailing, but the Dutch were effectively dominant. Like, if you go back 50 years, right? In 1607, you have the Dutch Admiral Peter Willemzoon Verhoff, who was sent with a fleet of 13 ships to capture Portuguese Malaga and then build a fort on the Banda Island of Nira. But both of these missions failed. It didn't work out for him. Verhoff attacked Malacca, but he couldn't take out the fortified city. So he then heads over to the Banda Island of Nira. But the leaders of the island, the Orankaya, they call a meeting supposedly to negotiate prices. And you know what they do instead? Did they kill him? They kill him. Oh, they ambushed him, his two officers. They decapitated them. They murdered another 46 Dutch soldiers. And the ambush was then going to be used by the Dutch to justify their oppression and almost extermination of the Bondanese people. Like they almost wiped them out to a man because of this. Because of one thing, one event. They just wiped out everyone. Yeah, because 46 of their men got massacred in an ambush. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, oh, that's not that bad. It's pretty bad, but you can't wipe out an entire group of people. I mean, people did it all because the time. Welcome to history. It's like if you stubbed, it's like if you stubbed your toe and in revenge, you went around punching everyone in like your school. You could do it. Doesn't mean it's right, but you could do it. Welcome <laughs> to history. Literally, literally, that is like this thing that That's sums up history. history. Doesn't mean it's right, but you could do it. People did it. Or they did my it all favorite, the time. You, 
probably shouldn't do that. It's probably bad. And then they just, you know, do it anyway. Yeah. Welcome to history. So one of the guys who survives the massacre was a person called Jan Peterzoon Cohen. He, at the time, had the rather modest title of being an assistant merchant. But when he returns back to the Netherlands and he gives the company's directors a report of all the different trade possibilities and everything that he's seen, he would, over time, he gets promoted to be the director general of the entire operation. So as Cohen and the Vok, they work to dominate the spice trade, the English are trying desperately to keep some measure of control of the area for themselves. Cohen had began his reign as the Vok director by transferring the headquarters from Bantam to Jakarta, and he converted the warehouse that was there to a fort. In 1618, you had a guy called Sir Thomas Dale that was sent from England to try to break up the monopoly and put in English amounts of control. And in a pitched battle, the undermanned fleet of Cohen was forced to flee to Ambon for reinforcements. And while Cohen was away, the Sultan of Bantam then decided to enter the fray and forced the English to withdraw and instead laid siege to the Dutch fort. So while the Dutch left and the English are trying to come in, he fights the English off and then now is sieging the Dutch in order to take that territory. So when Cohen, like, so when Cohen returns in 1619, he was then able to push the Bantam forces out of Jakarta and then just burns the city to the ground. Like he wipes out everything. And then on the ashes... They, he then builds the new Dutch city of Batavia. And that city, that's a, still the city, like that Batavia would become the headquarters of Vok in Southeast Asia. Like they you, did all of this over spices. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, have you heard of Batavia in Indonesia? Yeah. He's the guy who created it. That, that, that's the origin story. Right. That's where this all comes from. <laughs> Literally, it's like, oh, burns everything to ground. Put something else there. Yep, welcome to history. We're going to talk about and murder. We're going to talk about... Yeah, this one stayed. And it stays there. So while the, um, while the English and the Dutch were fighting over Jakarta, you have another battle that's raging on over at the battle at the uh, Banda Island of Rune. So you had a guy called Captain Nathaniel Kurthup who had reached Rune in 1616 and signed a contract with the locals who accepted James I as being their king. Like, they just, they just submitted. Under siege by the Dutch, Kutherp held out for 1,540 days before he got killed. But ironically, ironically, Cohen received word that the Dutch and the English leaders back home had come in an agreement to make peace and to instead cooperate in 1620 in the East Indies. The idea was this, that they were supposed to leave each other's existing outposts and trade agreements and settlements all alone. They were supposed to just be at peace with one another and both trade and work together to compete against their common enemies, the Portuguese and the Spanish and the other tribal chiefs that might try to interfere. But Cohen, who was really pissed off by this time, let the Battle of Ruin play out and he instead named this huge swath of territory of Java as the Jakarta Kingdom and just locked it out of English hands. So despite the fact that they were supposed to be at peace, he's like, nah, remember, Gabby, what, what, is, what, is, what is the theme of history? How do people treat each other? Horribly. Okay, but screw that guy. <laughs> screw that guy. Screw you. Yeah, that's exactly how it is. <laughs> uh, I got the easiest question wrong. Come on. I know. I, I almost want that on a shirt as a thing. It's like, screw that it's guy. like history book is the title. And it just inserts screw that guy over there. <laughs> Literally. Welcome to history. That's how it goes. 
So then in 1621, Cohen decides to make he decides to make a full scale conquest of all the Banda Islands using Japanese mercenaries. So the Dutch take over the island of Lanthor and this the English in the meantime are trying to support the other side using cannon. And this pisses off Cohen. So he and the Dutch then go on to massacre thousands of the inhabitants and replacing them with slaves from other islands, deporting 800 other inhabitants to Batavia. Only around 1,000 of the original 15,000 people on the island managed to survive. He wiped out all of them. Remember when I said the Dutch did really horrible things on these islands? This isn't like people arriving there with disease and people died of disease. No, this is they physically went and murdered and massacred so many people who got in their way. Like if you pissed them off, they would work with you. They were oppressive at different points. They would work with you. But if you went against them, the, the Dutch were almost like the Mongols and they would massacre anything that perhaps threatened their trade. So it got to a point where they took out so many people that Cohen thought that the best strategy that he would have would be to colonize these territories with Dutch settlers who would then be able to handle the East India trade. So he, he wanted to, he had this plan. He goes back home to the Netherlands in 1623 but there he gets hit by this major scandal called the Ambonia Massacre, where a group of Englishmen from the small settlement of Cambello and Ambon were taken into custody by the Dutch factors. They were questioned, they were tortured, and then they were sentenced to death because that's just what he did. He was in charge of all the stuff that was just brutal. They were working, or rather they were suspected of working with locals to try to rile them up into rebellion and take over the settlement. And Cohen wasn't directly involved in it, but he was the guy who was overseeing everything, so he was held as responsible. It wasn't until 1627 that he was actually allowed to return back to the Netherlands. And then do you think he gets to enact his plan? Yes. No, he shits himself to death two years later. Well, that's a good thing, because his idea was to bring colonists. Yeah. So I mean, they killed all the other people I mean, that were already there. It's not a good there. thing that he died. Wait, let's just back up. It's not a good thing that he died. <laughs> Well, I just for want some to emphasize people it was. That. It just really depends. I'm just the... saying that maybe bringing colonists over was not the best course of action. <laughs> but it's what he did. It's what he did. And so he gets dysentery and dies like two years later, and that's it. The gist is, by the end of this, the Dutch were brutal. The Dutch were remarkably brutal. They were effective. They were genius. They were amazing traders. But they were remarkably brutal, and eventually their control would come undone. Let me give you an example of one of the things they would do, right? Throughout the 17th and the 18th century, the Vok essentially had a monopoly on the clove trade through a absolute ruthless stranglehold over all these islands, right? They had nutmeg production and Tidor and Ternate that was under their control. They controlled all the cloves. They controlled essentially everything. In 1652, the Dutch forced the leaders of both islands to agree to something called the Spice Eradication Program. Can you guess what this is by the name? They got rid of spices. They got rid of it. So Wait, what, really? Yes. To keep the prices like high and themselves in control. So what they would do is they would pay an annual payment to the, the leaders of these islands, just like a, a lump sum. And then ex in exchange, the leaders had to destroy and remove all clove trees that were not owned by the Vok. This program was very rigidly enforced by the Dutch who would make regular expeditions 
And if they found any cloves that were outside of their control, they would cut it down and burn like the places of the inhabitants. They would just brutalize them because they were growing spices that were outside of the Dutch control. And the more spices, their spices. Yes. They were growing their own spices. Yes. So the, ah, more, okay. so the more spices that there were, the lower prices would be. And they didn't want that. And the more spices that were produced, the more potential there was for that spice to get into the hands of their competitors. Because then that would drop the price and it would mean that they couldn't they couldn't sell them at the ridiculous rates. Okay, so this is giving like the uh, silkworm vibes, except instead of it being the people who, you know, culturally owned the silkworm. Welcome to the history of trade. That's oh my god! Like the history of trade, like, like that's that's human, that's humanity, that's all this. That's that's why I look at this. I'm like, oh my god! When people say like, oh my god, I was born of the wrong era. Really, really, really? Where are you? Okay, like, so is oil kind of like a similar trading thing comparatively? You could argue. It really depends. It depends on the time. Like now, for as an example, the United States is the largest producer of oil in the world. Just as an example, it is. Um, the the other largest connect the, the other largest like producers is OPEC like the oil and petroleum exporting countries these produce a lot of it in the beginning of oil a lot of the the places that were producing oil the countries may have had it but the companies that specifically were producing it were owned they were foreign companies because the foreign companies were the ones that had the technology they had the capital they had all of the ability to actually extract it that the the countries that the resource was in didn't have like they had no real way to get access to it themselves so oh, it's like um norway and asking america for help with their oil because when they first found the oil they needed help on how to like process it and set that up right yeah i yeah. think i remember having that conversation with someone in with norway norse. yeah norse was talking about it yeah so, yeah so this is what they did right that's just as an example um this what they did here is a way way more brutal thing of what they would do it's like it's like imagine well, they took it it's imagine if like um imagine if you were only allowed to have an apple phone right or or a computer you had to have a pre-bought computer and you just happen to get the parts and make one yourself and i don't know apple because i believe apple doing windows probably wouldn't do it but apple would do it definitely oh wait you walked in you don't have an apple product what is this computer that's not an apple product and then they just broke the computer uh knocked you out and then set your house on fire while you were still in it that's what the Dutch were basically think, doing there. I don't think Apple would do that. I think it's more of a Windows thing. I, I can't explain it, but I just feel like it's definitely a Windows thing. <laughs> so, so all of this stuff is happening. Finally, after centuries, it's the French who begin to break the Dutch clove monopoly. Because in 1770, you have Pierre Pauvois or Poivre who is a horticulturist and administrator who smuggles out some seeds from the Spice Islands and he plants them on the Ile de France, which is now uh, the Maritus. Maritus? I believe that's in um, North Africa here. And also on the Isle Bourbon, now Renouillon. So I'm, I'm saying these French names. That it's obviously, very obviously bad pronunciation, but it is what it is. He plants these in these spots and they begin to grow it themselves. In 1812, you have an Arab called Harmali bin Saleh, who he transplants cloves from one of these French locations to Zanzibar, and he establishes plantations, which ultimately these plantations would take over and produce the bulk of the world's production. Zanzibar dominated the world's market production of cloves until 1964. Just because, I mean, they were just producing it. He just 
undercut the Dutch so severely. And so during the Napoleonic Wars, if we just go back further, the English temporarily seized control of the Banda Islands before the Dutch could regain, like, and before the Dutch could regain control of them when they would get them back. The English then go and they uproot hundreds of nutmeg seedlings and they transport them back to their own colonies in Ceylon, Singapore, India, all these places. Go like, oh, of course, Dutch, you can have your colony back. We understand that it was taken from you by the French. Oh, I'm just going to, um, oh, this tree? No, 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 no. I had this here. And they just take it back with them so that they can grow it themselves. Effectively, this completely crushed the Dutch stranglehold on the Indonesian spice industry that for them lasted over a hundred years. And at that point, the Dutch were very, it, like the Vok was very down on its luck. It, it was very sick at this point. You have the fourth Anglo-Dutch war of 1780 that left the company just a massive financial wreck. The French Revolution was in 1789 and that led to the occupation of Amsterdam in 1795. And so the Vok gets nationalized on March 1st, 1796, by the new Batavian Republic, and its charter was then allowed to expire on December 31st, 1799, ending the Vok. And that is its full, wild story. There's obviously a lot more tales in there. There's a lot more different things, but that's like, that's the Vok. It's a crazy tale. I'm just confused how the French Revolution led to the occupation of Amsterdam. Oh, uh, aggression. I'm not great at history, so just explain it to me. I need to like do a M5. whole thing on the French Revolution. Okay, I'm going to sum this up briefly, but that's... Oh, wait, that's a podcast series we should do. French Revolution. That's a really... Oh, which one? Oh, God. Yeah, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. Also, I'm just now realizing me trying to pronounce hundreds of French names over the course of that podcast would be an absolute nightmare. Do you want to do the French I Revolution? Instead, do you want to do it and not me? Uh, yeah, sure. I'll do it. <laughs> okay. 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 So, but yeah, Amsterdam, up, right? French Revolution. We're, we're, we'll, we'll make it real quick here, right? So you have the French Revolution, right? The revolution is seen as a threat to all the different states. And so there's a series of coalitions where the surrounding states around France are trying to bring it down to restore the monarchy and returns to stability. Because if the revolution succeeds, then that has a chance to lead to another revolution in all of their states, which could overthrow their own countries. So you have all these different states that band together to take out the French and the French preemptively go out and attack surrounding states to spread the revolution and to secure their border. Right. Because you have to attack so that you are not defending your own land. So they invade and take over the Dutch. Because that whole region is set to be used as like a staging ground by the Prussians and the English against them. And they don't want that. Interesting. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm dumbed down a lot, but that, that is a whole, whole tale that I probably should cover the French Revolution. Because that would be a great one. Another one. But anyway. Yes, please. Everyone, this has been The History of Everything with Stakuyi and Gabby. I appreciate all of you for listening. Do not forget to leave a review. And make sure to check out the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. Also, get our coffee. Make sure to check out this month's audiobook. Do everything you can here to help support us because this is, this is something that we really love doing and love sharing stories with you all. I hope to see you all here next time. And goodbye, guys. Bye.